Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. We're in our nine days format, spoken word format, as we call it. And Rabbi Beryl Wine is um, in the midst of a series for us entitled Jewish Societies in Retrospect. And this one is about the United States of America. Jews in the United States. Rabbi Beryl Wine on a Nine days format Tuesday at JM in the AM. This entire lecture series was dedicated Lilu Nishmas Ilio ben Yehuda, who passed away the 27th of Tevis, 5776. It's in memory of Edwin Jacob Berkowitz. I thank the Berkowitz family for their kindness. The Jewish experience in the United States of America is different than any of the other societies that we have discussed. Uh, There are a number of reasons for it, but the main reason for it is that this was the first time that Jews were in a country that did not have an official religion. The Jews in the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, Islam was the official religion. In Europe, all of the countries had Christianity as the religion. And the religion and the state were always connected somehow. Even after the French Revolution, when the uh, state uh, divorced itself from the Catholic Church, nevertheless, uh, a sizable part of the population if not even the majority remained Roman Catholic and the church had and has a great deal of influence political and otherwise and you see uh, in our time all over Europe there are political parties called the Christian Democratic Party in the United States no such thing ever existed So that was one major difference, is that, as we will point out, uh, there was plenty of anti-Semitism in the United States, but there was no officially established religion. The second difference was that the United States basically was a classless society. There were very wealthy people. There were aristocratic people, but the common person felt uh, that uh, one could rise to almost any heights uh, by the dint of one's efforts or by economic luck or by all sorts of methods. Now, the Jews that fled Europe 
there were three major influxes of Eastern European Jews. The Sephardic Jews came to America in colonial times, but they were very small in number. Maybe a thousand Jews at the time of George Washington. Of a population of one and a half to two million people. And they were all Sephardim. But early on, Jews rose to rank in the United States. In the War of 1812, there was a Jewish admiral, Uriah Levy, who was a, an admiral in the United States Navy and won a battle against the British at Lake Champlain. And uh, there always were Jews, again, Sephardic Jews, uh, that uh, were... Uh, influential and wealthy but there was a very small Jewish congregation in the United States that began to change in the 1840s the 1840s in Europe was a time of revolution great turbulence great uncertainty and there were wars uh, so uh, Europeans began to emigrate to the United States. Most of the immigrants were from England and Ireland. There was a potato famine in Ireland. People were running away from Europe. And uh, many of those that ran were Germans and non-Jewish Germans. And they settled mainly in Uh, the Ohio Valley in Cincinnati and in that area and that was in the uh, the Americans called it the Rhineland Jews from Germany also began to come in the 1840s these Jews were uh, reformed Jews completely non-observant and uh, they made a great success of themselves here there's a famous uh, book called Our Crowd by Stephen Birmingham which details the German Jews that came in the 1840s and they went into finance they were the first Jews to come on Wall Street They made brokerage houses, Kuhn, Loeb. It's interesting, the Rothschilds never invested in the United States, which probably was to their detriment. They were merchants. They made uh, great department stores, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Gimbel's. They made a great success of themselves financially and they established uh, the infrastructure for American Jewry and they therefore had as their goal to assimilate Jews as rapidly as possible into American society and since they were reformed 
so uh, that meant that uh, you didn't have to convert in America as for instance you had to do in Germany if you wanted to get ahead but it meant that there was no vestige of Jewish tradition present here in the civil war in the 1860s Jews fought on both sides of the war the secretary of state of the confederacy was Judah P. Benjamin who was a Sephardic Jew and there were many Jews that owned plantations in the south and there were also Jews that were in the slave trade there were Jews on the north probably more in the north than in the south the southern armies of the first instance of open discrimination against Jews we find in the Civil War by General Ulysses Grant in the Civil War uh, there were peddlers that came into the camps of the armies to sell the soldiers either food or utensils or clothing or trinkets and uh, he expelled and he said it specifically all Jewish peddlers they could not come into the Union lines Uh, Lincoln uh, countermanded the order he said you could not discriminate in that way either you don't let any peddlers in or you let all the peddlers in but Grant was not an anti-Semite that was just the way it was and we'll have later that when Grant became president of the United States he appointed the first Jewish member of the cabinet in America Oscar Strauss and he had many Jewish friends uh, who helped him in his financial he was constantly in financial difficulty in the late 1860s a man came to the United States from Germany his name was Isaac Mayer Wise now uh, he was a radical reformist who was so radical that he was pretty much kicked out of Germany but he came to the United States and he was a very charismatic person talented, an orator, a writer, an organizer and he rapidly rose to become the head of the reform movement in the United States he founded the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati where his base was because that's where the Germans lived and uh, he uh, in 1872 uh, created what was called the Pittsburgh Platform at a convention he created the Union of American Hebrew Congregations which is the uh, synagogue branch of the reform movement and he created Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati which was the rabbinic training school for reform and he uh, had a convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and the Pittsburgh platform which was adopted 
was extreme reform. No Hebrew in the prayer book, no mention of Zion and Jerusalem. Uh, we are American citizens, uh, no observance of any ritual whatsoever. We are interested only in the charitable values of Judaism. And that became the basic infrastructure of Jewish America. He created uh, the institution of federated charities that the Jewish community would operate charities and raise money from the Jewish community but that the charities were, so to speak, non-denominational and uh, were not uh, particularly Jewish at all. And that was a long process of the federations, a hundred-year process, uh, till the federations became a little more Jewish, as they are in our time. So you had uh, the Sephardic Jews here, and you had the German Jews. There were few, if any, Eastern European Jews here, and therefore there were few, if any, Orthodox Jews in the country. In the 1870s, America expanded westward to take the whole continent, kill out the Indians, and take their land and America was the land of opportunity if you came and you went west you could get uh, what did they say 40 acres and a mule people who never owned anything in Europe and had no chance of owning anything in Europe began to emigrate to the United States in vast numbers so for instance almost half of southern Italy moved to the United States 40% of the Irish population moved to the United States. And because of the persecution of Jews under the Tsar in Eastern Europe, a vast, large Jewish emigration began. It was facilitated by a shipping company owned by a Jew, Balin, who was a German Jew. It was called the Hamburg-America Line. So you had to get to Hamburg in Germany. And then you could get on the ship. No one needed a passport. No one needed a visa. You're talking about a different time completely. And you're talking about the fact that two and a half million Eastern European Jews picked up and over 40 years came to the United States of America. The Eastern European Jews were overwhelmingly observant, though they were in the vast majority ignorant. Ignorant in Judaism as well. Because Judaism in Eastern Europe was a societal religion. It was not a book religion. The average Jew never saw Gomorrah in his life. Jewish women generally were illiterate, could not read or write. But the idea of America spread like wildfire.
Shalom Aleichem has an essay in which he said the word America alone was magic. And people picked up and left. Especially uh, people who felt they had no hope in Europe. So there was always an upper class, as small as it was, they were not going to come to America. Uh, The scholars also were not going to come to America. But the masses were going to come to America. And they're the ones that came. And they came to an America that uh, was rife with anti-Semitism, a nativist America that was against immigrants. Uh, They came to squalor, terrible privation and poverty. But believe it or not, it still was better than what they left. And therefore, uh, as bad as the Lower East Side was, it was better than living in uh, Warsaw. And uh, this uh, tremendous wave of immigration uh, changed the face of American cities. I mean, New York is a prime example, but all of the cities of the East Coast, all the port cities, Boston, Philadelphia, even in the South, Galveston, Texas, because the boat stopped there, San Francisco, And because Chicago was the railroad center of the United States, there was a time when almost every railroad had to pass through Chicago. So there became a very large Jewish community in Chicago, eventually a quarter of a million Jews. Uh, These Jews were Eastern European. They spoke Yiddish. Uh, They had uh, a traditional lifestyle that generation of immigrants did not assimilate because they did not speak English and uh, they didn't have a chance to they were very active in the needle trades in small businesses but they were destroyed by the fact that America then had a six-day work week and if you wanted to get a job uh, only with rare exceptions could you uh, not work on Saturday the famous statement was if you don't come in on Saturday don't bother to come in on Monday in my time yet which is a long time ago, I admit. Uh, I remember in my father's synagogue on the west side of Chicago. So they had an early minion on Shabbos. Today, the early minion on Shabbos is a uh, refuge for holiness. Right? That's the minion God davens at. People say, I looked at Ashkoma minion, right? But in my time, the Ashkoma minion meant that you went to shul, you heard Kriya Torah, you daven Musaf, and then you got on the trolley and you went to work. 
and I'm talking about a shul that the Hashkoma Minyan had 750 people. The second Minyan that didn't go to work or they went to work later, I, didn't, I don't know, also was 750 people. But the destruction of the Sabbath, the fact that it could not be maintained, caused uh, the breakdown of the Jewish community almost immediately when coming to America. The uh, American Jew uh, revered education as uh, he or she does today. They all felt that education was the stepping stone uh, to a better life. So the uh, parents could remain uneducated and not speak English or speak English with a heavy Eastern European accent. But the children were going to be American. And there was the American public school system. And the public school system in the United States then, in the late 1800s, and until, really until the Second World War, uh, was uh, built upon the principle of the melting pot. The melting pot meant that we're going to take every culture wherever you come from, but we're going to melt it all down and you're going to come out American. Now, American meant a lot of things. American meant uh, Sunday was the day off. American meant Christmas. American meant uh, that uh, things that were anachronistic strange customs from the old world had to be discarded I remember I went to uh, public school till 7th grade and uh, I had all almost all uh, Irish spinster teachers who really taught us very well because that was the only thing they had in life and they poured it into us but uh, we knew every Christmas carol. We knew all the mythologies. We knew everything. Because that was part of having a public school education. So what about Jewish schools? And that's where the American Jewish community really, uh, the Sabbath was the first breakdown. Jewish education was the second. There were afternoon schools. In other words, you got out of public school at 3 o'clock. 3.30 was the afternoon Hebrew school. Now, when I grew up, the afternoon Hebrew school was still 3.30 to 7 o'clock. So that was a pretty long day for kids. And the quality of... uh, people who taught in those schools was not especially high and as I look back at it there was much physical abuse let alone verbal abuse it was an unappetizing place 
But uh, the rule was that if you wanted to be bar mitzvah, you had to attend the afternoon Hebrew school. So uh, essentially was an education of a 12-year-old. And uh, then they never opened the book again in their lives. There never was anything else uh, that they became uh, aware of. So uh, uh, for most American Jews, the concept of God and of Judaism and of Jewish tradition was that of a 12-year-old, even though they were 40 and 50 years old. But it never grew up with them. And therefore, uh, throughout this time, uh, the Jewish community was already drifting. But there was almost no intermarriage because the non-Jew would not marry a Jew. That was the great barrier to intermarriage in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But uh, once, uh, for instance, uh, presidents of the United States uh, could have Jewish sons-in-law, so then all barriers are removed. When barriers are removed and you have no Jewish education and you have, you're never brought up with the Sabbath or anything else, so intermarriage is a natural uh, plague to be expected. In the 1920s, after the First World War, there was a second wave of emigration from Eastern Europe. The Communist Revolution uh, helped drive it. The anti-Semitism in Poland and Lithuania and Hungary. The only country in Europe that was uh, not anti-Semitic was Czechoslovakia. And uh, the Jews uh, came in great numbers to the United States after the First World War. Again, uh, there was a nativist reaction in the United States. And the Congress in 1924 passed a immigration law that restricted immigration from Central and Southern and Eastern Europe. That meant they couldn't say Jews couldn't come, but they could say, as uh, as we have a travel ban today, that people from Libya can't come. And the Supreme Court holds that that's legitimate. It's within the power of the United States government. So they said, if you come from Poland, you can't come. They didn't say if you're Jewish. They said, if you come from Poland... There's a quota, 25,000 a year, whatever it was. If you come from Lithuania, you can't come. And uh, this uh, made it increasingly difficult for Jews to come to the United States. Always we were asked, uh, why didn't the Jews leave Europe? Basically because they had nowhere to go. There was no country willing to welcome them. You're talking about moving millions of people. So uh, as a practical matter, uh, that question is really uh, not in place. 
In the 1920s in the United States, it was called the Roaring Twenties. After the First World War, America withdrew from the world. Didn't want to have any part of the world's problems. Didn't want to be engaged in any more European wars. And uh, it uh, wanted to have a good time, which is uh, probably the largest industry in the United States still today, is having a good time. Very rarely do we achieve that, but we're always trying. The Jews in the United States invented a new industry called film, movies. So that's one of the uh, most remarkable things. Beginning in the early 1900s, there were little uh, places called Nickelodeons. Basically, you put in a nickel and it showed you for two minutes something. But the film industry developed, and it was developed by Eastern and Central European Jews. At first, uh, it was in New York. Then they moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey, which for 10 years was the film capital of the world. And then they decided to get out of the East Coast completely. And they moved to California, to Los Angeles, to Hollywood. Because California was always, uh, so to speak, the escapist place. The weather was different, the fruit was different, it was exotic. H.L. Mencken, who was a uh, great uh, satirist uh, in America, said that uh, God uh, stood America on end and everything that was loose fell to California. Jews created Hollywood and they created it because they wanted to create an American image as they imagined America should be and uh, the uh, films that were produced all reflected this dream of an ideal America. For instance, the first sound movie, full-length sound movie, in 1928, was called The Jazz Singer. And uh, it starred uh, Al Jolson, who was a Jew. Not only he was a Jew, he was a Chazan at one time. He was famous on vaudeville for uh, singing in blackface, which then was acceptable today. It would be uh, unimaginable. And the theme of the movie was that his parents are old-fashioned Eastern European Jews. His father, in fact, is the cantor in the synagogue. But he becomes a singer, and he falls in love with a non-Jewish woman. They marry, 
the father won't accept her, the mother is softer, but she is the greatest paragon of virtue ever. And the climax of the movie is that the father is too sick to recite the Kol Nidre prayers. So the son, Al Jolson, comes and performs the Kol Nidre prayer. And Mary is sitting next to his mother in the women's gallery. Now the message of the movie was clear. The message in the movie is that this is the way it's supposed to be. And the uh, influence of Hollywood uh, cannot be underestimated at all. It it still remains today. It's an enormous propaganda tool. Because you saw it on the screen. And Jews were inveterate moviegoers. My mother used to take me to the movie every Sunday. cost a nickel. I saw all the cowboy movies and everything. Jews always went to the movies. So that had an enormous influence on American Jewish life. And in fact, later, uh, the Jews invented Christmas. Because all the movies about Christmas were made by Jews... Irving Berlin wrote the music for it. And uh, so they created Christmas in their image of what they thought it should be. And that's why uh, the churches and others objected greatly. They said, you're taking the Christ out of Christmas. But that's what happened. And because of the power of the movies, that is American culture. That's the way it is. Another point in the 1920s. In 1896, uh, an Orthodox Sephardic rabbi in New York founded a school to train American rabbis for the American rabbinate. He called it the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. The institution uh, floundered, and it was bankrupt. It was about to close. In the early 1900s, there was a Jewish financier by the name of Jacob D. Schiff, who was a very powerful man on Wall Street, very wealthy man. And he took an interest in the seminary and he was determined that such an institution was necessary for American Jewry because he said the old-fashioned rabbis that come over from Eastern Europe uh, cannot deal with the youth, they cannot deal with American life. Most of them can't speak English. They don't give up their old ways. They dress differently. They look differently. We have to have, and that's what the Jewish Theological Seminary was founded upon. And they hired as its chancellor a famous scholar by the name of Solomon Schechter. 
Now Schechter had been the expert uh, on the Cairo Geniza and the uh, and he was uh, uh, financed by uh, British Protestants and Cambridge University and he uh, did a great deal of great scholarship and he was a, a great scholar but he already uh, denied the validity of the Torah as a holy book and he already had a vision that uh, modern America would have to look different than the shtetl in Eastern Europe and uh, with that Schechter eventually developed uh, what grew into the conservative movement in the United States. Now, they were never going to be as radical as reform. And uh, they called themselves conservative because they were conserving Judaism. In other words, they were taking the traditions and the obligations and keeping them, but they were going to put them in a more modern dress and make it more appealing to the American Jewish public. At the onset, it was very hard to tell the difference between the Orthodox and between the Conservative. The Conservative used the Orthodox Siddur. They uh, demanded uh, observance of the Sabbath. They demanded a kosher home. And many of the children of leading Orthodox rabbis became the vanguard of the conservative movement. In the 1920s it grew. In the 1930s it expanded even more. By 1950 what happened was that in many of the cities in America there were great demographic changes. The neighborhoods changed. The Jewish neighborhood went under completely. Jews moved to the suburbs. When that happened, when the synagogue was rebuilt, it was no longer rebuilt as an Orthodox synagogue. It was rebuilt as a conservative synagogue. The conservative movement was built upon Orthodoxy. But because of its nature, it could not maintain itself. In 1948, uh, because of the movement to the suburbs, so uh, when you move to the suburbs, uh, it wasn't like uh, apartment buildings. I mean, uh, I grew up in Chicago on the west side in four or six blocks. Everybody was there. Big blocks of apartment buildings. Here you had single homes. People wanted land. So... uh, you, you were uh, eight, ten miles away from the synagogue. How are you going to get there? So the conservative movement, uh, after much inner struggle, permitted driving to the synagogue on Shabbos, on the Sabbath. They uh, issued a uh, halachic responsa justifying it what they failed to reckon with is 
that people said to themselves, listen, if I can drive to the synagogue, I can drive to the golf course. Driving is driving. And to a certain extent, uh, they shot themselves in the foot. But by 1950, they were the growing future of Jewish America. The 1950 yearbook of the American Jewish Congress, or the American Jewish Committee, one of them, uh, said that orthodoxy will disappear in the next 20 years and that the future of American Jewry is in the conservative movement. And the truth of the matter is we believed it. The New Orthodox believed it. We didn't think there was much hope. Because the whole thing fell apart in front of our eyes. There were 42 Orthodox synagogues on the old west side of Chicago. Only six survived. Nobody wanted an Orthodox rabbi that couldn't speak English. Now, there were a number of Orthodox rabbinical institutions. There was uh, Reitz, uh, uh, Yeshiva University, then it was Yeshiva College. Uh, there was uh, Torah Madas in New York. To a smaller extent, there was Chaim Berlin. And there was the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago. But that was the ball game. And many of these uh, institutions had their students uh, desert them and attend the seminary uh, to become a conservative rabbi because they believed that that was the wave of the future. That was the only way it was going to work. The 1930s was the Depression. The Depression was a terrible experience for everyone. In our time of affluence, we cannot imagine what people went through. And uh, nobody ate uh, meat meals every night of the week. I was raised on peanut butter and jelly, which I still love. (laughs) And uh, in the Depression, people looked for scapegoats. And it was a tremendous wave of anti-Semitism in America in the 1920s and 1930s. There was the Ku Klux Klan, anti-Negro, anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish. Jews were lynched in the South. When Hitler came to power in the 1930s, so there was a great section of German-American citizens who backed him. There was the German-American Bund, run by a man named Fritz Kuhn. I remember the rallies they had in Chicago. I was a small child, but um, I saw how frightened my parents were. They would march in the streets. They had rallies in the Chicago Stadium, 18,000, 20,000 people. You go Ohio. Jews had a very low profile. You didn't raise your head. And therefore, uh, 
the, that mentality unfortunately carried over during the time of the Holocaust. Jews were bewitched by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was God. Uh, that's when the Jews became uh, uh, the and the overwhelming majority voters for the Democratic Party. And uh, Roosevelt had Jewish advisors. Samuel Rosenman, Stephen Wise, Henry Morgenthau, and there were Jewish Supreme Court justices, Brandeis, Cardozo, Frankfurter, but all of these Jews uh, were uh, assimilationist. Frankfurter was married out of the faith. They all believed that the future lay in not making waves. You have a famous incident that's recorded in many books regarding the Holocaust that the leader of the Polish underground in Warsaw escaped in 1942 and made his way to England and Churchill sent him on to America to see Roosevelt. And he said, I'm going to tell them what's going on. And Roosevelt refused to see him. But he got an appointment with Frankfurter. Now, Frankfurter, they felt, was close to Roosevelt. If he could convince Frankfurter, he would get the message to Roosevelt. So this uh, Polish patriot uh, described what was happening. The roundups, the shootings, the ghetto. The Jews are being destroyed in front of our eyes. After he finished, Frankfurter said to him, I don't believe it. So the man who uh, accompanied him said, Mr. Justice, he's telling you what he saw. It's an eyewitness. Uh, it's absolutely true. And Frankfurter said, I didn't say it wasn't true. I just said, I don't believe it. And nothing happened. He never spoke to Roosevelt about it. Uh, the American State Department uh, did everything possible to prevent Jewish immigration into the country. Refugee ships were turned away. Famous case of the St. Louis. Many of them ended up in Auschwitz. Nobody uh, came out with a good record. And we know the uh, Allied bombers did not bomb the railroad leading to Auschwitz, even though all the other railroads were destroyed. And uh, the Jewish community felt itself powerless. I think that that's the only word I could use. I remember it. I remember the war. I remember uh, the few uh, who escaped and came. The Jews were afraid to talk to them because they were afraid to hear what they were going to say.
so nobody talked about it. I know it sounds weird, but it isn't that we didn't know about the Holocaust, but no one spoke about it, with the exception of a few, like Peter Bergson and his group, the Orthodox rabbis in America, the Eastern European Orthodox rabbis, made a protest in 1943, uh, and they uh, marched to the Capitol in Washington. No congressman received them. They just massed on the steps. But they got some publicity. And the picture was in the paper. But they were roundly denounced by the establishment Jews who said we have to win the war that the Jews are a diversion the Jews somehow will sap uh, war materials, energy, money first we're going to win the war after we win the war then we'll be able to take care of everything This attitude began to change when the war ended. First of all, Roosevelt died. There's no doubt in my mind that if Roosevelt would have lived, the state of Israel would never have come into being. But uh, Harry Truman became the president of the United States. Very unlikely person. The Lord has his messengers. They're never the people that we think. And uh, the uh, death camps were uncovered, and the survivors were seen, and the full horror became apparent. At that time, the struggle against Britain in Palestine was going on from 46 to 48 bitter bitter struggle atrocities everything and you, you name it so then uh, American Jewry with the exception of a good part of reform reform was split Stephen Wise was a Zionist, but Elmer Berger was against the whole project. The reform movement was split, but the conservative and the orthodox and half the reform sought to do penance for what happened during the Holocaust in two ways. One was to try and bring over as many survivors as possible into the United States. Uh, in the war itself, the, uh, the uh, Jewish Welfare Board and the Vada Atzola were able to bring over about 100,000 Jews that were in a camp in northern New York and in southern Canada. And then, uh, by pressure, uh, the Immigration Service issued like 50,000 special entry visas 
so that some of the displaced persons could come to the United States. But uh, Truman uh, said that England should let them into Palestine. Ernest Bevan famously said, Truman wants them in Palestine because he doesn't want them in Brooklyn. There's a kernel of truth to that. But the uh, struggle of the Jews in Palestine against the British and then later against the Arabs, that became the goal of American Jewry. Later on, uh, freeing Soviet Jewry became the goal of American... All of this was because of the fact that during the Holocaust we were powerless and impotent. After the Second World War, the Orthodox community realized that without a Jewish education it is doomed. And it created what came to be known as the day school movement, which was you know, would be a Jewish school that would teach Jewish studies and secular studies as well. The Jews would no longer go to the public school. They would be in a protected environment. They would be able to grow up as Jews. And they would have the benefit of a good education that would enable them to be integrated into American academia and into American society. The success of the day school movement is again one of the great miracles of our time. Uh, When my parents uh, took me out of public school to put me in the junior high school that then was being formed, good and fine Jews came to my mother and said, you can't do this to him, you'll make him a cripple. I remember I overheard it. I said to my mother, why will will I be a cripple? She said, just ignore them. But uh, how many were we? A handful. But that handful built the Jewish community in the United States today. It was wildly successful. And then when uh, the Eastern European refugees came, amongst them great rabbis and Russia yeshiva, they said, we're not going to make the mistake that our predecessors made and say that in America it can't be done and we give up. We're going to rebuild Torah in America. And uh, that has also been wildly successful. Uh, Far beyond the dreams of anyone. So American Jewry stands at a crossroads now. It has no cause to support. Israel is, they say, is good enough without us. The Soviet Jews are already out. So it has no cause. And most of American Jewry has no tradition. And therefore, uh, without a cause and without a tradition, doesn't have much of a future. But uh, stranger things have happened in the Jewish world. And uh, 
I am uh, mildly optimistic about American Jewry. I'm very optimistic about Israel. And I think that all of these things will come to play, if not in our time, in the time of our descendants, that we will really see a strong and vital Jewry uh, throughout the world. That's uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the uh, topic of Jewish societies in retrospect. That specific lecture is entitled Jews in the United States. Information about his uh, lectures, it's one 800 499 wein one 499 wein or com. Check it. Check out the entire catalog online. We have been uh, for years presenting Rabbi Wine's lectures during the nine days, a way of uh, separating the nine days from the rest of the year programmatically so that we are almost fully spoken word during this period of time. And uh, again, uh, get the information about his lectures and uh, you'll see and hear why his uh, brilliance when it comes to Jewish history is so much appreciated by so many around the world. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. It is a Tuesday. We're in our nine days format on this August the 2nd, day five in the month of Menachem Av. Again, day five in the month of Menachem Av, all the traditional customs of the nine days are in effect uh, depending on your tradition of course we will observe Tisha B'Av this coming Sunday which is the 10th of Av we'll observe it this coming Sunday feel free to comment on the app go to the NSN Nahum Seal Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away utilize our app uh, for any comments and communication that you would like to have with us during our broadcast uh, Dr. Faye Zakheim is going to join us big event going on in the Catskills today and we'll find out what that's all about uh, also, we will uh, speak with our friends at Renewal later on in this show. We have been uh, asking everybody to uh, explore the possibility of kidney donation, specifically with our friend Dr. Jay Bienenfeld in mind. We will speak with our friends from Renewal coming up at 8 o'clock Eastern Time this morning at JM in the AM. Galit Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday is next. We say Boker Tov from JMDM. המתיחות הביטחונית בעוטף עזה, משלחת של המודיעין המצרי הגיעה היום לאזור ופועלת בשעה זו להרגעת המצב. כתבנו לעניינים ערביים ג'קי חוגי מדווח כי דובר חמאס אמר היום ברעיון לרדיו שמס כי מטילים על ישראל את האחריות על בריאותו של בכיר הג'יהאד האסלאמי בסאם עסאדי שנעצר הלילה בג'נין. ראש הממשלה לפיד ברך את נשיא ארצות הברית ג'ו ביידן על חיסולו של מנהיג אל-קאידה איימן הזוהירי. כתבנו המדיני יניר קוזין. העולם היום הוא מקום בטוח יותר, כך כתב ראש הממשלה לפיד בחשבון הטוויטר והוסיף, אני מברך את הנשיא ביידן ואת כל מי שהשתתף במבצע האמריקני המוצלח לחיסולו של איימן אל-זוהירי. ארגוני הטרור ונותני החסות שלהם חייבים לדעת, אתם חיים על זמן שאול, כוחות החופש יביאו אתכם לדין, כך לפיד. כזכור, הנשיא ביידן הודיע הלילה כי ארצות הברית חיסלה את מנהיג אל-קאידה בלילה שבין שבת וראשון בכבול בירת אפגניסטן. חבר הכנסת עופר כסיף מהרשימה המשותפת יזומן לחקירה בחשד לתקיפת שוטר. פעולותי החקירה אושרו בידי הגורמים המוסמכים, בהם גם היועצת המשפטית לממשלה גלי בהרב מיארה. כתבתנו עדה שטייף מעדכנת שחקירה נוספת מתקיימת כעת גם נגד חברו לרשימה אחמד טיבי. 
פרשת הסרסור בסוהרות, מבקר המדינה מתניהו אנגלמן אומר, אנחנו בודקים את הביטחון האישי של החיילות, לא רק בכלא גלבוע, נהפוך כל אבן כדי למצוא את הליקויים. בימים האחרונים התחלנו לפנות לחיילות ולחיילים כדי לקבל מידע רלוונטי ומקיף על תחישת המוגנות והטרדות מיניות שעברו בעת שירותם. מטרתו של הליך איסוף המידע הוא בין היתר לחשוף אירועי פגיעה מינית. אני קורא לכל מי שנפגעה או נפגע או שיש בידה או בידו מידע בנושא להעבירו לביקורת המדינה. מדבריו של המבקר הביא כתבנו אביתר בר-און. ראשי ועדי העובדים בהסתדרות התחייבו שלא לקנות מוצרים של דיפלומט, שסטוביץ' וקימברלי קלארק לקראת החגים במחאת עליית המחירים. מדווחת כתבתנו עינב קרנר. ראשי הוועדים שהשתתפו בפגישה ובהם שופרסל, התעשייה האווירית, מגה ואלעל, התחייבו שלא לכלול בחבילות השי לחג את מוצרי דיפלומט, שסטוביץ' וקימברלי קלארק. על אף ששופרסל העלתה את מחירי המותג הפרטי עד 25% בחצי השנה האחרונה, נמסר כי מדובר בעלייה מזערית. משרד הבריאות מזהיר מבני יתושים הנגועים בקדחת מערב הנילוס באזור אילת והערבה. כתבתנו לענייני בריאות, טלאור מאירסון. לפי נתוני משרד הבריאות, מתחילת השנה נפטר אדם אחד מהמחלה ונדבק אדם נוסף שנמצא במצב קשה ומאושפז בבית חולים. כדי להימנע מהקיצות, משרד הבריאות והמשרד להגנת הסביבה ממליצים לציבור לצמצם מקורות מים עומדים העלולים להוות בתי גידול ליתושים וליידע את הרשות המקומית על קיום מים עומדים ומפגעי יתושים בשטחים ציבוריים על מנת שיוכלו לפעול לסילוקם. מזג האוויר, עומסי חום כבדים ברוב האזורים. אלה החדשות שעורכת פיי גוטמן. J.M. in the A.M. as we continue on a uh, Tuesday morning broadcast. That's our newscast from Israel. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine is discussing uh, the United States and its Jews. And um, he touched upon the uh, entire era of immigration and integration uh, during his prior lecture. Now that is the topic of this entire lecture. Uh, the United States and its Jews is the name of the series Immigration and Integration. As we're spending a lot of time on this side of the world this time around during our nine days spoken word format, speaking about the uh, modern Jewish history and the history of the United States and its Jews. Uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And you're listening to a nine days format Tuesday at JM in the AM. There have been in Jewish history... a number of waves of immigration and Jews moving from one country to another. The Jews originally uh, went from Babylonia to North Africa and then from North Africa they went to Spain. They were in Spain a long time, 800 years. Uh, they were fairly numerous, they were quite influential and wealthy, and then they were expelled from Spain. When they were expelled from Spain, they went all over the world, basically in the Mediterranean basin, but really even to Eastern Europe. The Jews who lived in France who were expelled, they moved to Germany. Uh, the Jews in Germany suffered uh, in the Middle Ages uh, terrible persecutions. So they continued to move eastward into Eastern Europe. 
And that was the situation uh, pretty much until the 18th century. A new continent was discovered, the American continent. And uh, the original settlers who came to the to what later would be the United States and Canada were uh, originally Dutch, French, and then eventually the majority were English. Uh, in colonial times, the early uh, 1700s, there were practically no Jews in the American colonies. There were Jews who came from the West Indies, the Caribbean, and they came because of business. They were traders, they were merchants, they were engaged in the sugar trade and other things. And those Jews uh, eventually settled on the southeastern coast of the United States. So they were, there was a Jewish community in Charleston, South Carolina, in Savannah, Georgia, in Jacksonville, Florida. But there were no substantial Jewish communities. They were interesting people. Uh, research has shown us that, for instance, Alexander Hamilton, the first uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, and whose picture appears on its currency, uh, was descended from uh, Jews in Jamaica, though he himself uh, never was Jewish. There also were Jews who came to New York. Those were Dutch Jews who worked for the Dutch East India Company. New York, for a period of time, was governed by Holland. And uh, Peter Stuyvesant was the governor of New York. And he was very anti-Jewish. And he attempted to ban the Jews from living in New York. <clears throat> Since the Dutch East India Company was heavily financed by Jewish financiers, uh, they saw to it that he was removed from office. And uh, even though New York City till today has Dutch origins, you know, Harlem was a Dutch name, uh, the Van Wyck Expressway, which uh, is everything but. And uh, other uh, remembrances of uh, Dutch presence in the country. It was the English that took over. And as the colonies developed, uh, by the middle of the 18th century, uh, there was a trickling of Jews who came to settle in the United States overwhelmingly Sephardic Jews who were merchants and traders, again, connected to the West Indies and connected to the trading centers in Europe, London and Amsterdam. 
but there was no major Jewish substance, major Jewish community. Now there was these Jews established synagogues, and they established cemeteries. In the heart of New York is an old Jewish cemetery from the 1700s. Just to show you how uh, sensitive or insensitive, uh, it's located in a uh, very, very uh, desirable area. So there was a developer that proposed that he was going to build a high rise over the cemetery and he would raise the high rise so that it wasn't direct, so there was space between the cemetery and between where the building began. And uh, he was opposed by the Landmark Commission, uh, but the Jewish community in New York thought it was a pretty good idea. It never happened. But uh, that's one of the landmarks of Jewish presence in New York in colonial times. 1776 is the Declaration of Independence. Uh, The colonies break off from England after a long and bitter war. Uh, The United States of America comes into being. Now, the Jews who lived during the Revolutionary War, 50% of them were patriots, so to speak, on the side of the Americans. 50% of them were loyalists who were on the side of England. After the war was over, uh, the American patriots forced all the loyalists out of the country. Many went to Canada. Uh, but most went back to England. And uh, there was a very small Jewish community. Now, the Jews always wanted to portray themselves as patriots. Uh, So therefore, they uh, fostered a legend about Chaim Solomon, who was a Sephardic Jew, and that he somehow bankrolled Washington's army. And there's a statue to that effect of Washington and Solomon. And the Jews always were happy with it because it proved that they were on the winning side. But again, you have a very small Jewish community, Sephardic. You have the Spanish-Portuguese congregation in New York. But uh, there's no major Jewish presence. Since there's no major Jewish presence, there's very little anti-Semitism. And not only that, uh, the American government was founded on the basis of freedom from religion and equality of its citizens, even though uh, the Afro-American citizens were kept as slaves. But the goals were noble. And uh, America uh, was not seen by the Jews in Europe as a place to go to live. The legends about America was that it was a wild place, a lawless place. 
You had the indigenous people who were violent, and uh, to a great extent, therefore, uh, the people who emigrated to the United States were. Uh, Let's move it up. That's it. It's banging on the table. Oh. The people who moved to the United States were uh, of the lower class. People that ran away and they helped form the country. But there is again no Jew. Now there was a Jewish admiral in 1812. Uriah Levy was his name. He was an, one of the uh, first admirals in the United States Navy. He fought against the British in uh, the War of 1812. His family later bought Thomas Jefferson's home in Monticello, Virginia. And there's a Jewish cemetery in the backyard of Thomas Jefferson's home, the Levy family. So, uh, the United States does not have a Jewish problem. And it remained that way until the, towards the end of the 1840s. Then there were revolutions in Europe, revolutions against the monarchies, revolutions against the government. It became very unstable. And this brought about the first wave of major immigration of Jews to the United States. And these Jews were from Germany, and they were reform. And they came, and they settled mainly, the German uh, uh, immigrants uh, settled mainly in Ohio, near Cincinnati. In fact, in the American history, that was called the Rhineland. And uh, the Jewish, German Jews came there also. And as I mentioned, the German Jews were reformed. And they were the reform of the 1800s, not today's reform. And the reform of the 1800s uh, was out to sever all ties with Judaism, in effect to assimilate as rapidly as possible into the general population. So therefore, uh, Cincinnati became the home of Reform Judaism in the United States. Hebrew Union College was established in Cincinnati. And there was a Reform rabbi by the name of Isaac Mayer Wise, who came to the United States. He was a radical reformer in Germany. He was such a radical reformer that his congregation uh, drove him out. And he came to America, and he was the one that established uh, reform in the United States. So we have here, for the first time in Jewish history, that the basic infrastructure for the exile of, of Jews coming to a country was completely non-traditional, anti-traditional. So he established the the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, uh, Con Central Conference of American Rabbis, 
and uh, they adopted what they called was the Pittsburgh Platform. They had a convention in Pittsburgh, and the Pittsburgh Platform said no Hebrew, no Sabbath, no dietary laws, nothing. And it said basically no Jerusalem, no land of Israel, forget it. And uh, this was the Jewish community uh, at the time of the American Civil War. Now, the German Jews were very successful in two areas. They uh, became uh, Wall Street, Kuhn Loeb, other such uh, uh, companies, uh, later Lehman Brothers, uh, etc., these were all German Jewish financial institutions that made a fortune in the Civil War and rose to prominence and rose to great wealth and therefore also rose to influence. In the Civil War, because of uh, the fact that there was now Jewish money, so to speak, on the table, anti-Semitism increased. Uh, the Jews in the South fought on behalf of the South. The Jews in the North fought on behalf of the Jews in the North. Now the American army then, uh, a lot of the supplies, uh, because it's a civil war, were brought from home. It wasn't, so therefore they allowed uh, all sorts of peddlers and other people to come to visit the troops and sell them things. Many of these peddlers were these German Jews. So we had a famous order issued by uh, General Ulysses Grant that banned specifically all Jewish peddlers from the Union lines. Lincoln canceled the order and told Grant never to do that again. Now Grant was not an anti-Semite. Uh, when he became the president, uh, he appointed the first Jewish cabinet minister, Oscar Strauss, and he had many Jewish friends the Jewish bankers supported him. But the stereotype of the Jew was fixed in American society. The stereotype of the Jew was money, peddlers, who are not really loyal to anybody. And because reform was so radical against Judaism, the Christians also saw it as being radical against Christianity. Because Christianity was based, and still is, it's based on Judaism. It's based on the land of Israel. It's based on Jerusalem. But it's based on the Sabbath. And here you have this uh, so-called religious group that says all of this is nonsense. So uh, there developed a uh, genteel anti-Semitism in America. Now, we, we can read of this. There's a book by Stephen Birmingham, 
called Our Crowd, which is the story of the German Jews, Seligman Bear and all of them, in the 1850s, 60s, 70s. And how they made their own circle in New York. And they formed what became the federations. They created the Federated Charities of the City of New York. And through the federations, through these charities, they, so to speak, controlled Jewish life. And because the money was always there, and the influence was always there, so that's what American Jewry was in the eyes of the American people. Uh, you see, Birmingham's book is an excellent book uh, about uh, the times. In 1871, Tsar Alexander I was assassinated. The Tsar was a despot and the author of terrible anti-Jewish decrees. Those who assassinated him were anarchists, socialists, communists, and all of those groups had a disproportionate amount of Jews that belonged to them. There are many reasons, understandable. The persecution of the Jews was number one. Got to get rid of the Tsaris destroying the Jews. Uh, but uh, also because these are all utopian groups. They all promise that we're going to have the better world. They're going to bring about... Uh, the uh, the dream of the ages and that always appeals to Jews the more utopian you are the better your reception will be amongst the Jews now this stems from our messianic beliefs and it stems also from the way uh, traditionally we have always thought how the world should be. The world should be equal, fair, good. Everybody should have everything, you know, wonderful. Now, desire was assassinated. He was succeeded by Alexander II. Alexander II looked at the situation and he said, we have to reform the situation. So he took away many of the decrees against the Jews. He lightened the load on the peasants, the serfs. He attempted to drag Russia, as Churchill said, screaming and kicking into the modern era. But he died at an early age. And he was succeeded by his son, who uh, would eventually preside over the destruction of uh, Russia and of the Romanovs. Starting in 1870 and continuing unabated for 55 years, you have a tremendous wave of emigration of Jews 
from Eastern and Central Europe to the United States. Uh, Shalom Aleichem had an essay in which he said the word America was magic. The moment you said America, was, it was magic in the Jewish world. America was going to be the escape from everything that was wrong in Europe. And therefore you have uh, an immigration of uh, two and a half, two and three quarter million Jews to the United States in a short period of time. Now these are different Jews, these are not Reformed Jews. They're traditional Jews. They're not very scholarly. But they, uh, so they spoke Yiddish and they uh, built synagogues, but they never built schools. I remember my neighborhood in Chicago, and I, I was at, growing up at the end of the immigrant era. Uh, so we had 42 Orthodox synagogues within uh, one neighborhood. And I'm not talking shtiblach or house minyonim. I'm talking about buildings with great rabbonim, with hundreds of people every Sabbath. But there was not one Jewish school. And you didn't have to be a genius to figure out what's going to happen. Now this great wave of immigration, New York, absorbed a million and a half Jews. Other major cities in the United States. So all of a sudden, it was an enormous bulk of Jews. And these Jews were obviously, you know, the German Jews were uh, polite, genteel, well-mannered. One could not say the same for the Jews that came from the shtetl. I remember in my father's synagogue, there was uh, an item of furniture called the spittoon. And people went and spat in it or blew their nose in it. which is not very conducive to American culture. So the Jews were looked upon as backward, primitive. They didn't speak the language. And if they spoke the language, it was with a heavy accent. Now, all of us can uh, relate to this because we all here in Israel are also immigrants. And we know what it feels like when you try to speak Hebrew to somebody. And even though my Hebrew is perfect, they don't seem to think so. <laughs> and you had other ethnic groups that came. He had a few million that came from Italy. You had Irish. You had vast waves of immigration because America then was an open country. And America wanted the immigration because they wanted to become a continental power, push all the way to the Pacific, drive out the indigenous people. 
So you needed people, you needed population. The ethnic groups always warred with each other because they were at the bottom of the ladder, the rungs of the ladder. They were fighting for the same low jobs, for the same tenement apartment. So you developed uh, an anti-Jewish uh, atmosphere from above and from below. Now the reform that controlled the federations created institutions on behalf of the immigrants. There was something called Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And there were settlement houses. There were uh, afternoon schools. All of which the purpose was to strip them away from their Jewish roots and to try and assimilate them as quickly and as efficiently as possible into American society. On top of it, the American public school system then was built on the principle of being the melting pot. And the melting pot meant that you threw everybody in, but out of it would come a unified society. So the American public school system, which was mainly staffed by uh, Protestant spinster teachers, and had as its goal the complete assimilation of the students into what they determined would be American society. And therefore, uh, the Jewish children didn't stand a chance because of the fact that that was like the only, the only ball game in town, the only thing you could do. And all sorts of pressures existed uh, to assimilate. Now, Rabbi Tversky, uh, my friend, had a wonderful one-line description of that time. He said the immigrant generation of Jews to America wanted to give to their children what they did not have, meaning money, education, opportunity, respect. But he said they forgot to give them what they did have. and that evaporated. So uh, the process of integration, the process of assimilation was from the first day onwards. On top of it, we had all sorts of other problems that destroyed it. There was a six-day work week. You didn't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. So for the majority of American Jews, it was impossible to be a Sabbath observer. I always tell the story about my father's synagogue. 
that they had the two very large services on the Shabbat morning. First one was six in the morning. So there were 750 men that came. They prayed. They heard the Torah reading. And then they all got on the trolley and went to work. The second service was somewhat smaller. Those were people that somehow didn't go to work or didn't go to work that early in the morning. But if you didn't go to work, then how are you going to feed your family? And that was a uh, terrible test that most American Jews were unable to pass. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine is taking us through the United States and its Jews, one of his brilliant lectures in our spoken word format here during the nine days here at J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Goldwasser with the day off. We move on with our broadcast here at J.M. in the A.M. on a Tuesday, the 2nd of August, the fifth day in the month of Menachem Av. We will continue our J.M. in the A.M. nine days format through Sunday, of course, through Tishavav, and then back to our regular format this coming Monday. Uh, and yes, a lot of people are anticipating that. Once we get to the week of Shabbos Nachamu, people are much, much happier. JM in the AM, good morning all. Well, it may be uh, a, a drop to, uh, well, I wouldn't say that. I would say it's a little bit last minute in terms of the event that's going on in the Catskills today. But nonetheless, I felt it was important uh, to let the community know about this unique and interesting event that's going on in the Catskills. And if there is somebody that can um, uh, still be up at the Fallsview Estates Synagogue, the Fallsview Estates Shul on Fallsview Drive in Fallsburg at one thirty this afternoon, no doubt you're more than invited. We'll get the details from Dr. Faye Zakheim, who is uh, with us live via telephone. I remind you that the United Task Force is presenting its annual Catskills Nine Days Conference. Uh, the co-sponsors include Flatbush Hatzalah, Mask, Mothers and Fathers Aligned Saving Kids, uh, Ohel, of course, Shalom Task Force, of course. Uh, it's all done. Le'ilu Nishmas, Reb Shlomo Eliezer, Ben Harav Yaakov, and uh, Le'ilu Nishmas, Michal Abbas Mordechai Shmaryo. And, um, and information is available at unitedtaskforce.org. The program is Water, Fire, Earth, Wind. Explore the elements of your personality, how it affects yourself and others. Mrs. Dina Schoonmaker is the longtime lecturer and alumni hotline coordinator of Michalad Jerusalem College. Uh, the panelists, and she is the presenter. The panelists include Dr. Hindi Klein of OHEL, Dr. Shana Friedman of Shalom Task Force, and Dr. Faye Zakam, of course, chair of the United Task Force, uh, associate professor of the NYU Silver School of Social Work, and it's all happening today at 1.30 at the Fallsview Estates Shul. Dr. Faye Zakheim, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Hi, Nachum. I'm just listening to you, and I'm thinking, wow, if I was, if I was hearing about this, I would be racing over, because there's so <laughs> much about today. There just is. There's just so much about today that sounds incredible. Number one, Water, fire, earth, and wind. Nachum, really. Like, if you had to identify your personality, we'll do a little test. What are you? Yeah. Are you water? <laughs> Which means you're just, you know, you flow through life? I don't think so. Are you earth? Very well grounded? I do think so. Are you wind? Like, do you just go with the wind? I don't think so. I would put you in as fire. Nachum, you're fire. I guess it's You've some... been on fire. You're always on fire. You put everybody on fire. Nachum Siegel, you have to come to the conference today so we can put you up there and say, <laughs> this is our poster child for fire. It's an incredible concept, what she's doing. 
Like when you come in there, you ident- she explains what each personality is, and then you, find, you identify with one of those personalities, and then you understand yourself better in relationship to other people. Yeah. Like if you're a person that's fire, you know, which I think you are, are you better off with somebody who is water or with somebody who's very earthy and grounded or somebody who, you know, just lo- goes with the wind? Like, what would you say Stacey is, Nachum? Oh, the, we all know that you and Stacey have the best, best relationship. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, would, I would bet that, uh, that she's among the, uh, the wind or water category. That's what I'm thinking as you're going yeah. through this whole thing. Uh, I just, right? I, I, I wonder, though, if someone, you know, I mean, look, a lot of people listen to the show. A lot of people, you know, get comfort from the show and, and like the comfortability of the of, of the program i'm wondering if you could be fire and yet still be a comforting figure like i wonder if that's possible uh hello i think my husband shlomo zakharm was definitely fire and there was nothing safer for me than being with shlomo because i knew because of his fire everything was going to be okay because wow. it was going to happen it was going to be taken care of fire is great i think it's a great personality to have but on the other hand to you know compliment the fire Water is good. Stacy right. being water is really wonderful, you know. So uh, yeah, and you just had a baby girl, so Mazel Tov. Yes, we are grandparents, grandparents of Esther Liel, and my gosh, my gosh, it's so amazing! What a beautiful simcha. You know, it, it's interesting because every one of these things that you uh, that you're discussing today, every one of these things that are that are you know uh, being analyzed in terms of people's personalities, I guess every one of them can be, you know, positive and negative. Every one of them, as we like to say in the American vernacular, can be used for, for good or evil. So if someone is water, yeah. just, just like water can be damaging or, you know, life-giving, and just like fire obviously can be used for many, many positive purposes, and, and as we know, <laughs> very negative stuff, uh, and earth or, you know, even grounded when someone is in that type of situation, still there, there are some components, I would assume, of that personality of earth earth and wind that as, 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 uh, no matter what they look like on the surface, there are challenges, you know, involved as well. So not only does one have a personality, uh, that's described by one of these, in addition to that, they're like sub personalities or subtext to all of this in each one of these categories. And I think the part of coming in there and having self-awareness self-awareness is the key to everything. Yeah. Once you know who you are, yeah. you can, you're 90% of everything is done for you already. So it's, it's a great program. We know it's going to be packed. Like it's always packed. The Catskills ladies come from all four corners of the Catskills um, just to hear this. And Dina is a fun person to listen to. And then on top of that, to have a panel with Dr. Klein, with Timothy Klein is incredible. And Shana Friedman is coming up all the way from Shalom Task Force from Five Towns. And of course, Ruhama Klapman from Mass, she is really an, power a powerhouse she comes up here helps to organize she's just so amazing really every single we have 50 agencies that all work together it's amazing it's amazing and all of these agencies you would think oh you know since ol does mental health work and does mental health work and interboro and amudim and you have five other agencies all do mental health work you would think that if we sit at a table there would be some sort of conflict and it's not it's amazing. All the agencies get together, and it is the, honestly, honestly, I say this without hesitation, it is the picture of Shalom Bias. Everybody just wants to help polystyrol. Everybody just wants to make things better in terms of mental health and illness, in terms of depression, in terms of issues with molestation, 
issues with um, depression, drugs, alcohol, every domestic violence. I mean, there's a list of, you know, a slew of things because of the internet. Now everything is out in the open. The problems are out there and now we have to deal with them. And all of these agencies come together and they talk and they listen to each other. It's really, it's, it is, Dr. Rosenshine always talks about it. He says that it is the picture of what Sheldon Bias is supposed to be about. Wow, uh, Various opinions, but everybody listens to each other. Yeah, we're all so proud to be on it. We are all so proud. The annual Catskills nine-day conference, it's happening today. The nine-days conference is going to concentrate on exploring the elements of your personality, how it affects yourself and others. Mrs. Dina Schoonmaker will present on water, fire, earth, and wind, different personality descriptions. Uh, Panelists include Dr. Hindi Klein of OHEL, Dr. Shauna Friedman of Shalom Task Force, Dr. Faye Zakheim, who's with us live via telephone. It's happening today at 1.30 at the Fallsview Estate Shul on Fallsview Drive in Fallsburg, New York, United Task Force. Force.org. The United Task Force Executive Committee includes Dr. Schindler of Pesach Tikva, Dr. Joel Rosenshine of Patach, Rabbi Baruch Ber Bender of Achiezer, Rabbi Label Becker of Agudas Yisrael, Dr. Hindi Klein of Ohel, and of course Dr. Faye Zakhan of the United Task Force, who was with us live via telephone. Do you want me to run through the uh, all the agencies to give everybody a shout out this morning? Nacham, Nacham, I would just love it. We would all love it because these agencies really work really, really hard. It, they 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 put their life and soul into making things better in the world at large in our Claudius role. Day and night, twenty four seven, all of them, even though the office might not be open at two AM, is it the people they're answering phone calls at two AM, three AM, four AM. These are this is an amazing group of agencies, and I would, they would love you, we would love you to mention every single group, every single agency. So would you do that, Nachum? Well, I'm going to do it right now, and I do want to reiterate what you just said. There are a lot of agencies, many, many, many of these that are literally operating 24 hours a day, call a kavod to them, and, and answering calls in the middle of the night, which is necessary these days and pretty amazing. The United Task Force member agencies are Achiezer, Agudas Yisrael, Amudim, Biker Cholim, a BICCO Beaker Cholim Chesed Organization, Borough Park JCC, Broken Ties, High Lifeline, uh, Chemed, Kojo Flapush, Counterforce, Crown Heights JCC, Flapush Community Fund, Hatsala, Interborough Developmental and Consultation Center, JCC of Marine Park, Madragos, Maimonides, Magain New York, Macor Disability Services, Mask, Met Council, My Extended Family, Nachas Health, Nefesh International, Ohel, Orthodox Union, Our Place, Pesach Tikva, Project Sarah, Rachel's Place, Ray of Hope, Relief, Shalom Task Force, Sister to Sister, Sovri Helpline, Tafkid, The Jewish Board, Torah Musora, Yelen Vialda Early Childhood Center. These are all member agencies of the United Task Force. Call a kavod to all of them for the -the round-the-clock work that they do in helping people in our community constantly. Uh, UnitedTaskForce.org is the website. Those of you who are near the Fallsview Estate Shul at 1.30 today, that's when the nine days annual conference for the Catskills is going to be taking place. Mrs. Dina Schoonmaker on exploring the elements of your personality, water, fire, earth, and wind. Which one are you? If you're at the event today, you'll have to identify which one you think you are and then hear the presentation to see if you are right or wrong. Right, Dr. Zakai? It is amazing to listen to this, and um, I can't wait to be there. I wish you were coming. <laughs> and as I listen to you mention each of the member agencies, Nachum, I think one of these days you and I should sit down, and I, I really believe that each agency should have like a little spot or a big spot on your radio program to explain what each of these agencies do, because they could be helpful to every single family 
in some way or another. Yeah, I every, feel everybody could do some help in something. Yeah, I feel that every time that one of these agencies is highlighted, it ends up having a ripple effect, and people uh, who either did not know about them or didn't realize the type of services they provide end up being helped. So, yeah, anything we could do in terms of that would be my pleasure. Uh, they deserve it. They deserve the recognition. A lot of people out there will certainly uh, benefit from their. Uh, uh, from their amazing work. Uh, so there you have it. Daniel Kanskill's nine days conferences today, 1.30 p.m. At, up at the Fallsview Estate Shul. Dr. Zakheim, anything else you'd like to add? Just thank you, Nachum, for being Nachum Siegel. We are so proud to have you in our community. You are fire, Nachum. <laughs> have a wonderful day. Well, best regards to Stacey and the family. Thanks very, thank very much. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Dr. Faye Zakheim, of course, Always doing amazing work, and it's pretty incredible that such a large crowd and such an amazing array of agencies, as you heard the description before, uh, just, you know, constant cooperation, uh, incredible, uh, incredible, uh, a peaceful coexistence, not just coexistence, but, but peaceful uh, coexistence with incredibly hard work. Very, very, very hard work is being done together by so many agencies um, who act as one in trying to help people in our community, which is pretty remarkable. More coming up. You're listening to JM and the AM on a um, uh, Tuesday morning broadcast. Uh, we are in the midst of Rabbi Barrow Wine's lecture on the United States and its Jews, immigration and integration. And we're going to be joined by our friends at Renewal coming up in just a few minutes. Remember, we are trying very hard. Uh, with our good friend, Dr. Jay Bienenfeld in mind, we're trying very hard to find matches for those who are in need of kidneys. We'll get the details and find out how it works from our friends at Renewal coming up on this Tuesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. Here's our by Barrel Wine. And you had other ethnic groups that came. He had... A few million that came from Italy. You had Irish. You had vast waves of immigration because America then was an open country and America wanted the immigration because they wanted to become a continental power, push all the way to the Pacific, drive out the indigenous people. So you needed people, you needed population. The ethnic groups always warred with each other because they were at the bottom of the ladder, the rungs of the ladder. They were fighting for the same low jobs, for the same tenement apartment. So you developed uh, an anti-Jewish uh, atmosphere from above and from below. Now, the reform that controlled the federations created institutions on behalf of the immigrants. There was something called Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And there were settlement houses. There were uh, afternoon schools. All of which the purpose was to strip them away from their Jewish roots and to try and assimilate them as quickly and as efficiently as possible into American society. On top of it, the American public school system then was built on the principle of being the melting pot. 
And the melting pot meant that you threw everybody in, but out of it would come a unified society. So the American public school system, which was mainly staffed by uh, Protestant spinster teachers, and had as its goal the complete assimilation of the students into what they determined would be American society. And therefore, uh, the Jewish children didn't stand a chance because of the fact that that was like the only, the only ball game in town, the only thing you could do. And all sorts of pressures existed uh, to assimilate. Now, Rabbi Tversky, uh, my friend, had a wonderful one-line description of that time. He said the immigrant generation of Jews to America wanted to give to their children what they did not have, meaning money, education, opportunity, respect. But he said they forgot to give them what they did have. And that evaporated. So uh, the process of integration, the process of assimilation was from the first day onwards. On top of it, we had all sorts of other problems that destroyed it. There was a six-day work week. You didn't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. So for the majority of American Jews, it was impossible to be a Sabbath observer. I always tell the story about my father's synagogue that had two very large services on the Shabbat morning. First one was six in the morning. So there were 750 men that came. They prayed. They heard the Torah reading. And then they all got on the trolley and went to work. The second service was somewhat smaller. Those were people that somehow didn't go to work or didn't go to work that early in the morning. But if you didn't go to work, then how are you going to feed your family? And that was a uh, terrible test that most American Jews were unable to pass, unable to weather that storm. And once the Sabbath was gone, then everything else was doomed to follow. On top of it, coming to America with the Jews as part of the Jews were all of the Jewish anarchists, communists, and socialists who were now driven out of Russia. And they came to America and they remained. In fact, they became even more vehemently 
anarchists, socialists, communists, radicals. And they created a culture. Now, there's another book that I think that's worthy of your attention. It's called The World of Our Fathers. It was written by Irving Howe. Irving Howe, a socialist Jew, a professor, very well-written book. You read the, the book, must be 400 pages, and describes everything that went on in the immigrant generation. There is almost no mention of synagogues, Torah, or observance in the whole 400 pages. It's all about the workers' unions and the Jewish theater and the culture, but there's almost nothing about being Jewish in the book. And when he was asked why he wrote a book that, so to speak, was so blatantly uh, absent of uh, the other part of the Jewish story, he said he never knew the Jewish story. That's, that's the world that he grew up in. And uh, there was a whole culture of Yiddish. Yiddish was going to be the hallmark of American Jewry. So there were Shalom Aleichem schools and Yudlamid Peretz schools, all of which had nothing to do with Judaism and would not, uh, would not survive uh, uh, to the modern era. But that's where all the effort was. That's where all the excitement was, and that's where everybody said that's what it's going to be. And there were other phenomena in American Jewish life. One of the great phenomena was that the Jews created the motion picture industry, beginning in the very early 1900s. It was created by immigrant Jews. There was such a thing as uh, the Nickelodeon in that day, very primitive, and then they developed it and they made movies. They moved out to Hollywood. And they created the motion picture. Now, the motion picture was an enormous cultural tool. It influenced everyone in the United States and may still do so. And these immigrant Jews were determined to create an ideal America. And to create an ideal America... They had to crush any Jewish observance or ideas. So uh, it's not an accident of uh, fate that the first sound movie in the United States, The Jazz Singer, uh, starred Al Jolson in an autobiographical uh, role as the son of a religious family, a cantor, and that he himself becomes a popular singer, but that uh, he marries out of the faith, but that he nevertheless is accepted by the synagogue, and he uh, performs Kol Nidre in front of everybody in the synagogue but his wife, or his non-Jewish wife present. And that was America. That's what America was going to be. 
was accepted. And the Jews created this image. They created this image and they created a utopian America. An America where uh, it's home on the range, everything is beautiful. And later they would reverse the whole thing and create what in their mind was a disgusting America. But this had a tremendous effect. Now you have to realize uh, every family went to the movies. The movies cost a nickel. Five cents. So you went to the movies and you saw two movies and it was, and it was hot so the movies at least were air conditioned so you stayed maybe for a third movie. And it all had an effect. It had a great effect. And the effect was to build up in the mind of the next generation that somehow to be a success in America, to survive in America, you had to give up your Judaism. You could not combine the two. It could not happen. Now there were attempts uh, to swim against this. Uh, the major Yeshiva in America then was Rabbi Yitzchok Hochanan Seminary in New York, Reitz, which wanted to produce uh, American-trained English-speaking rabbis, but who would be loyal and faithful to tradition. But you had this conflict which never was resolved that you had the older European-born rabbis. They were a powerful, large organization called the uh, Union of the Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada. We will continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine here at JM in the AM a little later on, and if we don't get to its conclusion today, we'll certainly have it for you tomorrow. The lecture is entitled Immigration and Integration in Regard to the United States and its Jews. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures at one 800 499 W-E-I-N or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world of web and com on the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Well, many of you are aware of the fact that uh, recently we have been trying very hard to get as many people as possible uh, to contact our friends at Renewal um, specifically because of our friend, Dr. Jay Bienenfeld. Dr. Jay Bienenfeld is in need of a, of a kidney. He is somebody that's near and dear to us. We know him a long, long time. He's a great friend. And uh, his children and grandchildren and his entire family are begging everybody out there who has not yet uh, found out if you're a potential kidney donation match to please find out. You could email, in this specific case, our friends at Renewal, in reference to Dr. J. Bienenfeld, you could email and learn more about kidney donation or to find out how you could see if you're a match. Uh, R25555 at Renewal.org, R25555 at Renewal.org. In addition to that, there's going to be a swabbing event happening in Cedarhurst on Sunday, 
September the 5th. Um, let me just make sure that the 5th is a Sunday. It's going to be Sunday, September the 4th. My apologies. Sunday, September the 4th in Cedarhurst. And obviously, as we get closer and closer, we will remind everybody it's going to be at Kahila Space Israel, Rabbi Friedman Shul in Cedarhurst. With us live via telephone is the uh, director of Outreach for Renewal, Rabbi Josh Sturm. Rabbi Sturm, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we'll start with just uh, an introduction so people can understand the role of Renewal in all of this. Uh, can you explain what Renewal is and what it does? Sure. Renewal is an organization that has been around now for about 17 years. And uh, Baruch Hashem, in those 17 years, we've been fortunate to be involved in over 850 life-saving transplants. Wow. And it's been an incredible journey. Uh, the first year we set as our goal to do one transplant. We figure you save one life, that's a world as we know. Yep. And that year we were actually able to do two. Uh, if you fast forward, uh, pre-COVID in 2019, we did 119 transplants. Uh, and just uh, this past month of July, we did 18 transplants in one month. It's been an incredible journey uh, to see how the Jewish community really rallies around each other and supports and, and comes out to uh, to literally save lives. And, and just so people understand some of the technicalities behind all this, because, you know, those who follow the news and hear about, especially when it comes to higher profile people, hear about the need for kidneys, we're always told that there are lists and there's an order, etc. But But one can, and tell me if I'm right about this, and if I'm not, you'll certainly explain, one can designate uh, a specific donation, if they wish, for a specific person. Would that be the way to put it? Absolutely. And not only could they designate a specific person, they could also designate a potential demographic group. So, for example, uh, the most in-demand uh, demographic that we have, unfortunately, we have children on our list. And so people call us and they say they're, they would love to give to a child. Right. And now we won't give away any identifying information, but a person can absolutely uh, request a specific uh, demographic, a specific type. It's their kidney. They can decide what they want to do with it. Now, uh, we're going to speak about the event coming up on September 4th, and obviously we're going to speak about our friend Dr. Jay Bienenfeld. But just as an example, uh, you were down in Atlanta on Sunday. Uh, Dr. Paul Merlis, who is uh, well-known and uh, somebody who is um, quite dear to the Atlanta community and, frankly, to many communities around the world. Uh, the Merlis family is a uh, high-profile and, uh, and very beloved family. Uh, he is in need of a kidney, and there was an event that happened this past Sunday. You were there, uh, which was... I believe described as a swabbing event, right? To see if there's a potential donor among those who show up to the event. Can you explain how that system works? Correct. And the, the program that we did in Atlanta is actually going to be very similar to the program we're going to do for Dr. Bienenfeld in Cedar on September 4th. And what it is, is we come in and we talk about kidney donation. We educate people. We find that there's a lot that people don't know and understandably so about the topic of kidney donation. And then after that, we also hear from an actual kidney donor who shares their inspiring story. And after that, we do the swabbing event. So anybody who's still interested in getting tested, and that's where we differ a little bit from, let's say, the bone marrow organizations. Our goal is not to just get everybody in the world tested, because when it comes to kidney donation, it's actually not that difficult to be a match. Right. It's more about finding the person that's interested in getting tested, interested in potentially becoming that kidney donor. 
And so in Atlanta, Baruch Hashem, we were very successful. We had about 150 people that showed up and about 100 people that got tested right there on the spot, uh, which is a phenomenal number to be able. And, and we see that really when we go to communities all across the country, um, the, especially in the from world, the communities really rally around the person in need, whether they're high profile or very often even when they're not so high profile. What are the chances? Are the chances good, uh, somewhat good, that of those 100 people that you met on, uh, on Sunday, that one could be a potential match? Of course, everything is in Hashem's hands, but it, based on the normal way of doing things, the chances are very good that there is a, uh, a, a match. It's also, when it comes to kidney donation, it's not just a matter of a match. We're also looking for a, there are levels of matches. So we're looking for the best match. Right. So the chances in this case are, Be'ezrus uh, Hashem, very, very good. And that, frankly, is wonderful news. <laughs> Rabbi Josh Sturm is with us live via telephone, Director of Outreach for Renewal. Uh, all right, so as you said, the event that happened this past Sunday, and the way you just described it, it's going to be very similar to what's happening in Cedarhurst or by Friedman Shul on September the 4th. We want very, very badly to help our friend Dr. Jay Bienenfeld. One of the one of the things that already I've discovered in this conversation is that there's there's a tremendous amount of hope that there's a, there's a as you just described, there's a really good chance that if people come out and get uh, swabbed, uh, that you know down the road there will be a uh, a, a very good match uh, for Dr. Bienenfeld. And I think we need to just, at this point, encourage more and more people to come. The larger the pool, the more of a chance to get that, I guess, what you described as, you know, best match possible uh, for him, right? That would be, that would be what, we're, what we're aiming for. Absolutely. And I also want to point out that even somebody who knows that they're not going to be a kidney donor, we still want them to come out because one of the things that we find that is amazing is that when people learn about kidney donation and they start to talk about it with their friends and family afterwards, you never know who you speak to that has given some thoughts to the idea of kidney donation that then comes forward for after that. And so we want as many people as possible, regardless of whether they're going to get tested or not, to come out to support Dr. Bienenfeld, and just to learn more about kidney donation. I want to point out that there's no, this is not a fundraiser. We're not asking for any money whatsoever. Uh, we're just asking for people to become educated, and if they're inclined to, to get tested. But yes, I would say that uh, there is very good reason for optimism. Um, what's, the, uh, what's too young to be a donor, and what's too old to be a donor? In the United States, the, uh, the minimum age to donate is 18 years old, but with all due respect to teenagers nationwide, uh, we don't feel that they are typically of the right mindset to make that life decision. And so we typically start working with individuals when they're 21. On the older end, we actually have a lady named Ruth, who has the distinction of being Renewal's oldest kidney donor, and Ruth is, is remarkable. She donated her kidney at the tender young age of 77. Wow. Uh, but if you ask me, if you ask me, she has an even more important distinction. She happens to be a child survivor of the Holocaust. For a survivor to be a kidney donor, I mean, this is somebody who's already made her mark on the world, and she's not done yet. And thank God she just celebrated her four-year kidneyversary and is doing wonderfully well. Unbelievable. Is her recipient doing well? So Baruch Hashem, I don't remember all the details of, uh, of all those cases, but when it comes to uh, a kidney from somebody in their 70s, it's usually going to somebody else in their 70s also. So right. it's a very similar 
kind of match. Understood. Unbelievable. Information, by the way, folks, about all of this, and there's a lot of information online, go to renewal.org, renewal.org. The website describes itself as a comprehensive resource for kidney donors and recipients. That's the description of the organization. Again, uh, renewal.org. And if you do want to donate, if you do want to support this cause, because imagine you could be part of a life-saving experience, there is a donate button at the very top right of that page. And we here at JMNAM encourage everybody to support great causes, especially renewal. So go to renewal.org. Also, keep in mind, those of you in Cedarhurst, anywhere in the Five Towns area, uh, or or anywhere, if you want to just come and be part of it, we hope you will, uh, in Cedarhurst, or by Friedman Shul, on September the 4th, that's going to be the uh, day uh, that the swabbing event takes place. That's at Kehilas Basis Roll, Rabbi Friedman Shul in Cedarhurst, and we will uh, inform you about it and continue to inform you about it as we get closer and closer to the event. How complicated is the swabbing process? It's as easy as putting a Q-tip in one's, uh, in one's mouth. That's the Not whole like thing. Not like a COVID test. This is in the mouth just against the cheek. That's all we're doing. Unbelievable. And uh, if, if, should someone make assumptions about their own potential for kidney donation? If someone says, I'm not the healthiest person or I've had, I don't know, this problem or that problem, not kidney related, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on antibiotics a lot or, I have, you know, I, or I, I tend to have this condition or that condition. Should they be making assumptions about their potential to be or not be a kidney donor? Great question. Uh, many people who think they cannot be a kidney donor are actually more than qualified to be one. Wow. Uh, the only major automatic disqualifier is diabetic. If somebody is diabetic or pre-diabetic, they cannot donate. If somebody is significantly overweight, they also cannot donate. But uh, short of that, it's going to matter of the details. Even somebody who's, who has somewhat high blood pressure, is on some medication, can potentially become a kidney donor. It, it'll matter on the details. Uh, same thing for cancer survivors or even somebody with kidney stones. It depends on the details of how severe uh, a case it is. Understood. Uh, well, it sounds like the key for us is to just get as many people as possible to an event like the one coming up on September 4th. That's that's really what it's all about. The more people that are there, uh, the more potential for an optimum kidney donation, right? Absolutely. 11 o'clock till 1 o'clock on September 4th at Gila Space Yisrael Cedar. That's it. And we'll continue to remind people as we get closer and closer. And Baruch Hashem, Bali Ayn Hara, it sounds like Rabbi Sturm, from what you're saying, we have we have a great, great potential uh, to help Dr. J. Bienenfeld. We have a, uh, a, a, a very, very positive outlook uh, in terms of the uh, possibilities in this situation. Uh, and uh, that's what we're going to work toward. We're going to work toward uh, making sure he gets a good kidney donation, please God, and lives many, many healthy years. And I don't know what to say about renewal. I mean, you're doing this 17 years, which is remarkable, and the numbers that you've achieved uh, are incredible. I don't know what people in our community in these type of situations would do without you as an organization. I guess that's why you were founded 17 years ago on that principle of trying to help people specifically uh, target kidney donation and, uh, and, and, and lead healthy lives. Uh, but uh, uh, just to, I am sure that today people are now discovering just how vital an organization you are in our community. So all I can say is call a vote, and thank you for being there. Baruch Hashem, I just want to give the credit really goes mostly to these wonderful donors who are such selfless individuals coming out to literally save lives. And so call a vote to all of them. And those donors, and one of them we'll hear from on September 4th, would tell us, I assume, that as 
as as frightening as one might think the experience is, uh, it is just the opposite. It is fulfilling and exhilarating. I would guess they would say that, right? The the line we hear over and over again is that their only regret is that they can't do it again. <laughs> it's a it's a once in a lifetime opportunity, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's I guess that puts things in perspective uh, and hopefully we'll find more and more people who want to have that once in a lifetime opportunity go to renewal.org if you want specific information on being swabbed tested in a potential match with Dr. Jay Bienenfeld there is an email address that's been set up by the folks at Renewal specifically for his situation r25555 at renewal.org r25555 at renewal.org and circle your calendar for September 4th we will remind everybody as we get closer of our Friedman Schul and Cedarhurst will be the site of the swabbing uh, event where you get to get to uh, uh, find out more about renewal, hear from somebody who donated a kidney, and uh, be swabbed uh, in the um, uh, in the uh, hopefully in the potential to uh, help Dr. J. Bienenfeld uh, through this whole situation. Uh, Rabbi Sturm, anything else you'd like to add? Thank you so much. It's a really a pleasure and an honor. And yeah, please come out and uh, support Dr. Bienenfeld. Uh, with Hashem's help, uh, we have good reason for optimism. Or Hashem. Boy, great to hear that. Uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Rabbi uh, Josh Sturm is Director of Outreach for Renewal. Go to renewal.org, R-E-N-E-W-A-L.org. There is a donate button at the top right. We're highly recommending it as a cause. In addition to that, a circle on your calendar September the 4th. And use the email address if you want to start the process of getting swabbed and seeing if you're a potential uh, kidney donation match uh, for Dr. Bienenfeld. It's r25555 at renewal.org, r25555 at renewal.org. JM in the AM on a uh, Tuesday morning, nine days format. A couple of things I wanted to mention as we continue here. On this Tuesday of the nine days. Um, Let me see here. Got a couple of important communiques. Oh, first of all, the the Tishabov program has been announced for uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, Happening Matzei Shabbos with Mariv, Kinnis, and Eicha. Um, Let me just see here how I could do this. Um, I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble. I am having trouble getting this to cooperate with me, but I will try to do that. Give me a second. This is the um, Tisha Buff program that's in Brooklyn every single year. So on Saturday night, uh, Marav, Eicha, and Kinnis will start at 9.45, then a presentation by Rabbi Avi Gold. And uh, from the archives, Rabbi Matisio Solomon uh, at 11.15. On Sunday, Shachris at 8, then Kinnis with Rabbi Ephraim Levine. Presentations during the day include Rabbi Yoshua Schwartz, Rabbi Herschel Zolti, Rabbi Moshe Tovia Leaf, Rabbi Akiva Grunblatt, Rabbi Moshe Yosef Scheinerman, Rabbi Moshe Meiselman, Rabbi Shmuel Dishon, Rabbi David Goldwasser, Rabbi Fischel Schachter, uh, it's happening at Yeshiva Chaim Berlin Elementary School, and it'll be streaming live at TorahPrograms.com. Uh, the elementary school is 911 East 13th Street. For information about the event in Brooklyn for Saturday night and Sunday, Tishabov, 
918-5822-718-998-5822. All right, so that's Tisha B'Av program for Saturday night and Sunday. Um, and that's happening in Brooklyn, New York. Then I wanted to mention that uh, the annual Tisha B'Av Mincha and program this year, which normally is at the Isaiah Wall, this year is going to be taking place virtually. Instead of being across from the UN, you can attend from around the world and make your Tisha B'Av even more meaningful. It's coordinated for by Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns. This coming Sunday, Tisha B'Av, August the 7th, Mincha at 145. Guest speakers begin at 245. It's all happening via Zoom. The virtual Tisha B'Av Isaiah Peace Wall prayer service for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. A murderous Russian assault on Ukraine has devastated Jewish communities which arose from the ashes of the Soviet regime. Israel facing an existential threat from a soon-to-be nuclear Iran and daily threat of terror from Hamas and Hezbollah. Ethiopian Jews caught in a bloody civil war and prolonged malnutrition. Manifestations of anti-Semitism at City University of New York and other campuses. That's why they continue the 45th annual Tisha B'Av prayer service and focus on Jews in danger worldwide. Due to COVID, this year's program will again be virtual rather than the Isaiah Peace Wall. And there will be many presentations. Uh, hosts included by Stephen Wexler, Rabbi Stephen Exler and, and Rabbi Avi Weiss. Make your Tisha B'Av more meaningful. Uh, again, the information is um, available through Amcha. Um, I'll, I'll give you, well, it's, it's a pretty long Zoom ID. Um, so if you want this information, just email me, nachum and nachumsegal.com, and we'll make sure to get it to you before Sunday. Again, that's nachum and nachumsegal.com, N-A-C-H-U-M, at N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com, and we will get that information to you uh, via email. And also I wanted to mention, let's see if I could do this. Hang on. <laughs> uh, Amit is holding its annual Yom Iyun, a day of learning for women by women, tomorrow starting at 10 a.m. Again, Amit's holding its annual Yom Iyun, a day of learning for women by women, tomorrow, Wednesday, August the 3rd, starting at 10 a.m. The event will feature Professor Smadaros and Swag. She'll be the keynote speaker with a lecture entitled What is the Secret of Yushalayim's Kedusha and Centrality in Our Lives? She's Clinical Associate Professor of Bible and Judaic Studies at Stern College for Women, world-renowned Jewish educator and lecturer in Tanakh. And uh, the event chairwoman for the past 21 years is uh, Rebetzin Mimi Melman, and she invites everyone to um, uh, take advantage and become part of of the Yomiyun. She says that our Yomiyun has motivated hundreds of women to come together to learn as a Chabura, many valued and insightful lessons from our Torah and beyond. As a passionate Jewish educator, Smadar Rosenzweig's insight fits well with the mission of Amit to provide cutting-edge education to children throughout Israel, many of whom live on the periphery and come from disadvantaged homes. The Yomiyun is going to be happening at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst. Registration tomorrow begins at 9.30 a.m. The program and lecture begins at 10 o'clock. I will conclude with lunch at 11.45. For information, to make reservations, etc., amitchildren.org slash yomiyun. Amitchildren.org slash yomiyun. Uh, you could also call 212-477-5691. 212-477-5691. Or write to Robbie F. R-O-B-B-I-E-F at amitchildren.org for email information. So again, Amit has its annual yomiyun. Day of Learning, tomorrow starting at 10 a.m. 
775 Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst, the Sephardic Temple, registration at 9.30, the program and lecture at 10 o'clock, and it'll conclude with lunch at 11.45. Information on meetchildren.org slash yomiyun, meetchildren.org slash yomiyun. All right, so there's some of the things that are happening, some of the things that are going on, and... Um, I hope that everyone takes advantage of the unique programming that takes place uh, during the nine days in so many communities worldwide. It is a good idea to take advantage of the different offerings uh, around, around our global community during this time of year. More coming up. It's JM in the AM. We're going to try to uh, conclude the lecture bar by Beryl Wine on the United States and its Jews. This one about immigration and integration. I apologize if there's a little bit of... Uh, of a repeat of some of the things that Rabbi Wine said earlier this morning because we do try to rewind a bit to give everyone an opportunity to catch up on the content of the lecture. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or you can go to rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, and you are listening to JM in the AM. Immigrant Aid Society. And there were settlement houses. There were uh, afternoon schools. All of which the purpose was to strip them away from their Jewish roots and to try and assimilate them as quickly and as efficiently as possible into American society. On top of it, the American public school system then was built on the principle of being the melting pot. The melting pot meant that you threw everybody in, but out of it would come a unified society. So the American public school system, which was mainly staffed by uh, Protestant spinster teachers, and had as its goal the complete assimilation of the students into what they determined would be American society. And therefore, uh, the Jewish children didn't stand a chance because of the fact that that was like the only, the only ball game in town, the only thing you could do. And all sorts of pressures existed uh, to assimilate. Now, Rabbi Tversky, uh, my friend, had a wonderful one-line description of that time. He said the immigrant generation of Jews to America wanted to give to their children what they did not have meaning money, education, opportunity, respect. But he said they forgot to give them what they did have. And that evaporated. So uh, the process of integration, the process of assimilation was from the first day onwards. 
On top of it, we had all sorts of other problems that destroyed it. There was a six-day work week. You didn't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. So for the majority of American Jews, it was impossible to be a Sabbath observer. I always tell the story about my father's synagogue that had two very large services on the Shabbat morning. First one was six in the morning. So there were 750 men that came. They prayed. They heard the Torah reading. And then they all got on the trolley and went to work. The second service was somewhat smaller. Those were people that somehow didn't go to work or didn't go to work that early in the morning. But if you didn't go to work, then how are you going to feed your family? And that was a uh, terrible test that most American Jews were unable to pass, unable to weather that storm. And once the Sabbath was gone, then everything else was doomed to follow. On top of it, coming to America with the Jews as part of the Jews were all of the Jewish anarchists, communists, and socialists who were now driven out of Russia. And they came to America and they remained. And in fact, they became even more vehemently anarchists, socialists, communists, radicals. And they created a culture. Now there's another book that I think that's worthy of your attention. It's called The World of Our Fathers. It was written by Irving Howe. Irving Howe, a socialist Jew, a professor, very well-written book. You read the, the book, must be 400 pages, and describes everything that went on in the immigrant generation. There is almost no mention of synagogues, Torah, or observance in the whole 400 pages. It's all about the workers' unions and the Jewish theater and the culture. But there's almost nothing about being Jewish in the book. And when he was asked why he wrote a book that, so to speak, was so blatantly uh, absent of uh, the other part of the Jewish story, he said he never knew the Jewish story. That's, that's the world that he grew up in. And uh, there was a whole culture of Yiddish. Yiddish was going to be the hallmark of American Jewry. So there were Shalom Aleichem schools and Yud Lamed Peret schools, all of which had nothing to do with Judaism and would not, uh, would not survive uh, uh, to the modern era. But that's where all the effort was. 
That's where all the excitement was, and that's what everybody said, that's what it's going to be. And there were other phenomena in American Jewish life. One of the great phenomena was that the Jews created the motion picture industry. Beginning in the very early 1900s, it was created by immigrant Jews. There was such a thing as uh, the Nickelodeon in that day, very primitive, and then they developed it and they made movies. They moved out to Hollywood and they created the motion picture. Now, the motion picture was an enormous cultural tool. It influenced everyone in the United States and may still do so. And these immigrant Jews were determined to create an ideal America. And to create an ideal America, they had to crush any Jewish observance or ideas. So uh, it's not an accident of uh, fate that the first sound movie in the United States, The Jazz Singer, uh, starred Al Jolson in an autobiographical uh, role as the son of a religious family, a cantor, and that he himself becomes a popular singer, but that uh, he marries out of the faith, uh, but that he nevertheless is accepted by the synagogue, and he uh, performs Kol Nidre in front of everybody in the synagogue but his wife, with his non-Jewish wife present. And that was America. That's what America was going to be. It was accepted. And the Jews created this image. They created this image and they created a utopian America. An America where uh, it's home on the range. Everything is beautiful. And later they would reverse the whole thing and create what in their mind was a disgusting America. But this had a tremendous effect. Now you have to realize uh, every family went to the movies. The movies cost a nickel, five cents. So you went to the movies and you saw two movies and it was, and it was hot, so the movies at least were air conditioned, so you stayed maybe for a third movie. And it all had an effect, it had a great effect. And the effect was to build up in the mind of the next generation that somehow to be a success in America, to survive in America, you had to give up your Judaism. You could not combine the two. It could not happen. Now, there were attempts uh, to swim against this. Uh, the major... Yeshiva in America then was Rabbi 
Yitzchok Hochonon Seminary in New York, REITs, which wanted to produce uh, American-trained, English-speaking rabbis, but who would be loyal and faithful to tradition. But you had this conflict, which never was resolved, that you had the older European-born rabbis. They were a powerful, large organization called the uh, Union of the Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada, who were all European-born. Almost none of them spoke English. And uh, when, uh, for instance, the so-called modern Orthodox rabbi came into being, that rabbi was not accepted as being a real rabbi. They were clean-shaven. They spoke their sermons in English. Uh, the older rabbis held them to be inferior in Jewish scholarship, in Talmud. And uh, you had this rift. And the older rabbis would eventually leave the scene. But they left over a legacy of this internal conflict within orthodoxy itself. Of the... Uh, mindset that we're not going to accept certain people because they're not like us. In 1898, there was an attempt by a Sephardic rabbi in New York to create an institution that would produce American-trained rabbis who would preserve the tradition of Judaism. It was called the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And as its head, there was a man that who uh, was world famous, Solomon Schechter, because he was the great expert on the Cairo Geniza. I think there was a great Geniza in Cairo that was discovered in the 1870s. And the Geniza is fascinating. It has uh, original documents of Maimonides. It has grocery lists. It has report cards. It's a window into uh, 10th, 11th, uh, early and earlier centuries of Jewish life in Egypt. And it also had manuscripts that we did not know existed or that we did not have any originals to compare it to. And now it existed. And he spent like 25 years, and he restored 42,000 of these pieces of paper, parchments, etc. And he was financed by two Scottish Protestant spinsters from Cambridge University, and that's how he made his reputation. And he had a tremendous reputation to being a Jewish biblical scholar. He himself was personally observant. So when this seminary uh, began, so first of all, the uh, 
Orthodox establishment, the European rabbis uh, immediately discounted it because they said that's not a yeshiva. So their, their recollection of a yeshiva was uh, Slabotka and uh, Valozhin. So uh, Schechter came. And when he came, he had a very uh, cool reception. He was not treated uh, in the fashion that he felt that his scholarship uh, deserved. And in any event, the uh, German financiers on Wall Street, who were all reform, one of them had a son-in-law by the name of Jacob Schiff. Now, Jacob Schiff was a traditional Jew. He was not reformed. But he was convinced that orthodoxy could not maintain itself in the United States. And he said to the seminary, I will finance you, but we have to create. And that was the birth of what today is called conservative Judaism which somehow attempted to burn the candle at both ends, to accommodate itself completely to American life and to somehow conserve Judaism in a meaningful fashion. Uh, Originally, you could not tell the difference between the graduates of the Jewish Theological Seminary and graduates of Orthodox institutions. In fact, many of the graduates of the Jewish Theological Seminary served as leading Orthodox rabbis in the world. For instance, Chief Rabbi Hertz in England was the uh, Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, was a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. But after a period of time, as always happens, It's very hard to maintain a uh, footing on the middle road. And uh, conservative Judaism then broke off and it became its own. And it said that it was between reform and orthodox. And it was the wave of the future of the American Jewish community. Conservative Judaism was not successful in spreading its message anywhere else except the United States and Canada. In the rest of the world, uh, it was Orthodox Judaism, and if you didn't, uh, weren't observant, you weren't observant, but that didn't affect your, the definition of Judaism. You didn't create, so to speak, a new type of Judaism to fit uh, your social needs. So that happened at the beginning. Another thing that happened, which uh, when the Italians came, especially those from Sicily, they brought the mafia with them. It was their way of life. So you had this type of crime families that exerted uh, tremendous financial and even political pressure, especially in the city of New York, 
but in other cities as well. The Jews grew up side by side with the Italians. And therefore, a Jewish mafia also came into being. And the Jewish mafia, for a long period of time, was more powerful. And the most famous gangsters originally in the United States were Jews. I remember as a child, I overhearing in my parents' home that my father complained to my mother. He said he had to conduct a funeral today. The funeral was for a Jewish mobster who was a member of the shul. And what was he going to say about him? I never knew what he was going to say about it, but uh, that was a symptom of the times. And so you had that the immigrant Jewish community had all sorts of labels to it. it had the label of money, peddlers, which later became Wall Street, which in today in the United States, when you hear... Uh, the, uh, the left talk about Wall Street, they're talking about Jews, they're not talking about Wall Street. The fact that many of them are Jews doesn't change that. Wall Street is a euphemism for Jews, even though most of Wall Street has never been Jewish and is not Jewish. J.P. Morgan wasn't Jewish and Rockefeller wasn't Jewish. And Henry Ford certainly wasn't Jewish. But that's a label. And labels uh, eventually stick. People are not sophisticated to really know what happened. And then you have the label that Jews are not religious. Because look at reform. And then you have the label that Jews are leftist communists anarchists and then you have the label that Jews are gangsters so when you look back at it it's miraculous that the uh, Jew the early Jews in the United States were not uh, persecuted on the streets because everything negative in an American life was thrown and attributed to them. Now, uh, Woodrow Wilson who was the president of the United States during the First World War, appointed the first Jew uh, as a member of the United States Supreme Court, I mean, Louis D. Brandeis. <coughs> Brandeis met with an enormous amount of anti-Semitism on the court. There was a southern bigot on the court, McReynolds. In all the 25 years that Brandeis was on the court, he never spoke to him once. Harvard had no Jewish professors. But then somebody bought a seat or established a chair in Semitic studies. And uh, he, this uh, wealthy man, uh, they chose uh, Henry Austrin Wolfson, who was a graduate of Slabotka Yeshiva, 
and who was a well-known Semitic scholar to be the professor. He, uh, there are a number of books about him, and he himself wrote a book of essays. He is the author of the famous story that uh, uh, one of the other professors at Harvard came up to him and said, what makes you people think you are so special? And Wolfson said to him, as far as I know, we're the only people who, when we drop a book, picks it up and kisses it. But that was the atmosphere. And uh, the second and third generation of Jews who did not want to be tarred with those uh, labels and wanted to get ahead. They didn't want to live in tenements on the Lower East Side. And the only way to get ahead was, they said, through education. And education meant college. It didn't mean just getting high school. Now, even high school was not then mandatory in the United States. Most Americans had a sixth or seventh grade education of elementary school, and that was it. Pretty much so today as well, even though they may attend colleges. I remember when I uh, left the public school at seventh grade, I knew a lot. But high school was, wow, that was a level already. And college was uh, the top of the heap. And Jews were convinced. And under Jewish pressure, for instance, uh, the city of New York created a college, City College of New York. And it was pretty much a free college. And it was 90% Jewish. And that was the stepping stone to get out. Now, you couldn't get to medical school easily because the medical schools would not accept Jews happily. So whereas in Germany, uh, 30 to 35% of all the doctors were Jewish before the Second World War, Roosevelt famously... Uh, stated that he understood Hitler because there were too many Jewish doctors in Germany. But in the United States, there were maybe 2-3% of the doctors were Jewish. And you couldn't get in. So what did the Jews do? They formed their own medical schools. And they formed their own hospitals. So that's why in New York you had Beth Israel and Mount Sinai. In Chicago you had Mount Sinai. And these hospitals were kosher hospitals. Some of them still today are kosher hospitals. They were made by Jews for Jews. So, and, they, and would hire Jewish doctors and would have an adjunct medical school or nursing school so that Jews could go into the medical profession. All of this happened but there still were no real Jewish 
religious schools of education built. Now, Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchol Chonon began in the early 1900s. Uh, it uh, produced uh, the uh, new Orthodox rabbi for America for decades and decades on end, even till today. Uh, but it was looked at askance again by the older traditional rabbis. Even though its faculty was always older traditional rabbis. In fact, the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, the conservative movement, was older traditional European-born rabbis who were completely observant and who were great scholars. But the school itself was something else. Uh, I certainly cannot judge people especially people from a different generation and different circumstances. But it's an anomaly that's hard to uh, somehow logically explain. Uh, there was a man uh, by the name of Bernard Revel, Dr. Bernard Revel. The Revel was a Talmudic genius. He came from Eastern Europe, he came to America. He married the daughter of an Oklahoma Jew who literally struck oil and was a trillionaire. And Revel, he took Revel into the business. The Revel lasted about a year. And then he said, uh, that's not for me. And he moved back to New York. And uh, because of his great talents, he went to uh, university and got a PhD. And he was one of the great Talmudic scholars. And eventually he became the head of Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchok Chana. And he built the institution till his death in the early 1940s. And he had this vision that he was going to build a Yeshiva with a university as part of the Yeshiva. And he realized the dream. However, again, uh, there was uh, great opposition to it. And till today, this divide in American Jewry, in American Orthodox Jewry, is alive and functioning. Uh, on both sides of the ledger. So the immigrant generation is a generation of confusion, of terrible difficulties. But it was still part of the great magic word America, because everybody felt, here we're going to make it. The socialists felt it, the mafia felt it, the religious felt it, everybody felt it. Here we're going to make it. This is different than Europe. And it was that idea that would fuel the further development of American Jewry. This can 
Uh, that's the uh, lecture on immigration and integration by Beryl Wine on the series of the United States and its Jews. Uh, spending a lot of time this nine days format on this side of the world and the uh, modern Jewish history as uh, or vis-a-vis the U.S. Uh, information about the lectures, uh, Rabbi Wine's entire catalog at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. I want to thank those who have been commenting on the app. Much appreciated. Lots of great comments. Mazel tov wishes, etc. Much appreciated, to say the least. Want to remind you that the uh, Tishabov service uh, that normally takes place at the Isaiah Wall is going to be a Zoom Tishabov service this year. Uh, as we announced earlier, if you want the information, just email me, and this way we'll send you the Zoom link and the flyer, etc. Uh, it's Nachum at NachumSiegel.com, Nachum, N A C H U M, at NachumSiegel, N A C H U M S E G A L.com. Just email me for that information. And we will um, send that off to you. You'll have it before Sunday. Um, told you earlier with uh, Dr. Zakheim on the air that the uh, Nine Days Catskills Conference is taking place today. That's up in Falls View. And that starts at 1.30 this afternoon. Go to unitedtaskforce.org for information, unitedtaskforce.org. Also, the Amit Yomi Yun happens tomorrow. Again, Amit is holding its annual Yomi Yun, a day of learning for women by women, tomorrow at 10 a.m. The event will feature Professor Smadar Rosenzweig as keynote speaker. The lecture is entitled, What is the Secret of Yushalayim's Kedusha and Centrality in Our Lives? She's Clinical Associate Professor of Bible and Judaic Studies at Stern College for Women at Yeshiva University and world-renowned Jewish educator and lecturer in Tanakh. Rebbitson Mimi Melman, the event chairwoman for the last 21 years, said the Amit annual Yomi Yun is truly a happening. Um, is truly a happening. We began as an educational group in Lido Beach and with many prominent uh, keynote speakers and have grown exponentially over the years. Our Yomi Yun has motivated hundreds of women to come together to learn as a Chabura, many valued and insightful lessons from our Torah and beyond. Uh, Smadar Rosenzweig will speak. Tomorrow at the Svartic Temple, the Amit Yomi Yun is at the Svartic Temple, 775 Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst, registration at 9.30, program and lecture at 10 o'clock, included with lunch at 11.45, information to make a reservation, etc. Amitchildren.org slash Yomi Yun, Amitchildren.org slash Yomi Yun, or 212-477-5691, that's 212-477-5691. Again, on the web... Uh, go to amitchildren.org slash yomiyun, amitchildren.org slash yomiyun. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners' sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a um, Tuesday for us here at JM and the AM. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more tomorrow. Uh, coming up, uh, acapella selections. This time of year format uh, all day long at the NachumSiegel Network. Enjoy and just keep it on in your office or in your car, and you'll have appropriate selections for this time of year. 
Have a fabulous Tuesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. <laughs>